We are uh, quickly approaching the the one year uh, mark in uh, in our COVID journey uh, here at EBC and in in uh, Central Illinois. One year ago today was kind of the the last normal Sunday, if you want to call it that. Um, wasn't the last Sunday we met. We met one more after that, but at that point there was a whole lot of question <laughs> swirling around about uh, what was going to going to become of all that but uh you know so next week what is uh one year ago next sunday marks the last time that we met before it was uh 11 weeks online only and in some ways that all just seems like it was just yesterday and that was a year ago but in some ways it also feels like that was a lifetime uh, ago um, so much has happened in those 12 months. Um, so much has, has changed in those 12 months and maybe not even all directly uh, attributable to, uh, to COVID itself. But I would, imagine that, uh, I would imagine that none of us here would describe the last 12 months as normal. And in fact, in, in, uh, in going by the, the definition of the word, it might even be appropriate to say that we've faced a crisis over this past year. The, uh, the definition of crisis would be, would be a time of intense difficulty or trouble or danger. And that very well may be the, the feelings that we have, things that we've felt since March of 2020. Um, I'd say it's also entirely appropriate to suggest that God's people during the time of Isaiah uh, were facing a crisis as well. Um, if, if, we've, if we've learned anything from the first 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it's that there was indeed a, a threat of judgment facing the people due to their sinful, rebellious rejection of God. There was no question that they were staring down their own time of intense difficulty and, and trouble and danger. And in the midst of that uh, impending crisis, the book of Isaiah pauses and, and shifts gears in order to paint a clear picture of how the people would ought to respond in the face of that crisis. So as we come to chapters 36 through 39 this morning, they're not only there to guide the people of southern Judah in how they ought to handle a crisis situation that they face, but it guides us as well when we face a crisis in our own lives. So as we jump into these chapters this morning, I, I would encourage you to open your Bible to Isaiah 36. Or if, you're, if you've got a, the Bible app on your phone, go ahead and, and open that to Isaiah 36. <clears throat> There's pew Bibles in front of you that you can use as well. When you get to Isaiah 36, here's, here's what I want you to do. Um, I, I said that it kind of shifts gears at chapter 36. Take a moment and, and observe in the text what it might be that indicates to us that a shift is about to take place. What from chapter 35 to chapter 36 reveals to us that something different is, is happening? Just take a moment and kind of look at that and, and see what comes to mind.
Would, any, would anyone like to uh, take a risk and share something that, that you see there? Something that you've observed? Anything stand out to anyone? Yeah, so Matt said 35 looks like poetry, and 36 looks more normal. Looks like, you know, you're reading a book or a newspaper or something like that you know, with paragraphs again. Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the big indicators there. Uh, you know, and again, and, and we kind of, I think we talked about in week one of the series that uh, poetry in the Bible can, can be difficult because of the translation gap. Um, poetic devices just often don't translate well from one language to another. And so the biggest clue in our English translations that we're reading poetry is, is how the text is arranged. So chapter 35 and, and much of the book of Isaiah prior to that, we see that it's arranged differently. So, for example, you know, there's, it highlights kind of an A line followed by a B line, and sometimes there's a C line after that. That, that indented nature of the text reveals to us that it's poetry that's, that's being written there. And then chapter 36, it shifts to prose, would be, would be the term for it. And so it's formatted, again, more like kind of normal, a book or a newspaper or something like that. So anytime we, we, we see a shift like that, it's, it's a good idea to ask ourselves the question, why? why? Why is the text making that shift? What's going on there? You know, in a book that has been predominantly poetic up to this point, why change things up like this? And then to kind of take things even a, a step further, um, your Bible may indicate to you that uh, not only are we changing formats here in chapters uh, 36 through 39, but what we see in those chapters is basically word for word what you will find in, in 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20. I mean, almost word for word. And so it might be tempting to assume that, well, Isaiah is borrowing from 2 Kings. 2 Kings comes before Isaiah in our Bible, so maybe Isaiah is borrowing from that. In actuality, Isaiah was probably written before 2 Kings, so if anybody's borrowing from one another out of those two, it's probably 2 Kings borrowing from Isaiah. But perhaps even more likely is that both are drawing on recorded history. Um, when you read through 2 Kings, you see something mentioned called the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Perhaps more likely is that both Isaiah and 2 Kings are drawing from that book. And so that's why we see that it's word for word uh, written there. But the question is, why change gears like this? Why, why go from poetry in the first 35 chapters, and now all of a sudden we're inserting a nearly word-for-word -word story from another source about one of the kings of southern Judah? This story was inserted when the book was being written in order, I think, to help interpret the previous 35 chapters. There's something in the story of King Hezekiah in these chapters 
that shines a light on the crisis that God's people were facing. So, so we're going to go through this passage, these four chapters. As we go through it together, let's, let's see what King Hezekiah's response can teach both the original readers and, and us today as well. So, so as we look at these, King Hezekiah's story is one in which he faced two crises simultaneously. There were two crises in his life. One was from the threat of an Assyrian invasion. It was more of a national crisis. Assyria was knocking on their doors, threatening to to invade Jerusalem. The second crisis was more personal. It was Hezekiah's own failing health. But he faced them both at the same time. So let's, let's look at that first one, because that's the one mentioned first. This threat of, evasion, of invasion. The Assyrian army had marched upon Jerusalem, and they were threatening to attack it and destroy it. But rather than march right in and attack, the commander sought to convince the people of Jerusalem to just simply surrender. The first strategy was, let's see if we can just get them to give up, because after all, why risk casualties among your own soldiers if you can just get the other side to wave the white flag and just surrender right then and there? And so in an attempt to secure that surrender, the commander sought to sow doubt among the people of Jerusalem. So if you look with me in chapter 36, let's, uh, let's start in verse 4. It says, and the Rabshaka, and that would be the commander, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So the commander there is sowing doubt regarding help for Jerusalem from Egypt. He was sowing doubt uh, regarding help from God. He was sowing doubt regarding Jerusalem's own military might and strength. He was sowing doubt regarding God's purposes for his people. Uh, in essence, the commander was sowing doubt in all these different ways in the hopes that it would, would sprout and grow and bear the fruit of fear. And that's, that's what he wanted to have happen here. Sowed out among the people that they would hopefully become afraid. And then the next logical step after that would be surrender. Now, one thing that I think we ought to realize is that in a crisis situation, which is what the people were facing, a crisis situation is fertile soil for doubt to grow. Um, it's just something that we have to recognize. It just is. 
there were many true things that that Assyrian commander spoke. He said some true things in there. Egypt was not going to be able to offer Jerusalem help when they needed it. That was true. Jerusalem could not provide 2,000 soldiers to put on the horsemen. He wouldn't have said it if they could have. Uh, the commander went on, uh, verses 18 and 19, he, he stated how Assyria had defeated all these other nations and, uh, and destroyed their gods, and, and again, that was true. The reality of the situation was that the people of Jerusalem were up against a force much stronger than themselves. They were faced with a legitimate crisis, and they didn't have much reason to hope in themselves, and so because of that reality, the, the soil was fertile for that seed of doubt to grow into fear. And had Hezekiah allowed that seed of doubt to grow, I, I think fear would have surely followed. But he didn't. He didn't allow that doubt to take hold. Look what Hezekiah did instead. This is chapter 37, Hezekiah's response in verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he said to Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that your, the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So, in the face of crisis, King Hezekiah knew that he needed to cry out to God. He knew that. He examined the situation. He understood that, that uh, his only hope rested in God. And so that's what he did. And, and I think there's a couple things to note in his response here. First is that uh, Hezekiah, and you see this in verse 3, he, he did not shift or deny blame regarding the crisis that, that uh, the people faced. He knew that the people had rebelled against God and that that, that rebellion deserved judgment. Or, or rebuke, as, as the word uh, Hezekiah used there. He knew that. In other words, you can argue that the crisis was due at least in part to the decisions of the people. They'd chosen to rebel against God, and so judgment was most definitely deserved. However, it didn't stop Hezekiah from crying out to God. He, he, he still went before God. He still sought deliverance from the crisis. He sought that deliverance in God. And so you and I may look at a crisis situation in our own lives and, and if we're honest, find ourselves at least partly responsible for, for that situation. That doesn't have to be the case, but, but it could be. It could be that because of a decision we've made that we find ourselves facing a crisis. But even if that is the case, that shouldn't stop us from crying out to God, as we see here. No matter the cause of or the reason for our crisis, God is our hope for deliverance. He is our hope. 
I, I'm kind of reminded uh, of Peter, the story uh, where Peter, uh, uh, or Jesus walked on the water, right? Jesus walked on the water first, and then Jesus challenged Peter to get out of the boat and walk to him, or Peter wanted to, and Jesus uh, said, go ahead and do that. Well, Peter did. He stepped out of the boat and began to walk, but then upon, of course, seeing the wind, seeing the waves, he began to lose faith and began sinking. Uh, crisis situation, right? He found himself in that crisis situation because of his own lack of faith. As he put his faith in Jesus and walked toward him, there was no crisis. He was walking on the waves, moving toward Jesus, but kind of created his own crisis situation there. Yet, Peter still cried out to Jesus and experienced deliverance from that crisis situation that really was his own doing. So you can see that example in his life. So, so even if we're sinking down into the waves because of a lack of faith, we still can and should cry out to God in the midst of that. He is our only hope for deliverance. He's our only hope in that. So we see that in Hezekiah's response here. The other thing that, that I think we ought to take note is uh, Hezekiah did not presume that deliverance would come according to his own ideas. Um, and you see that uh, in verse 4, chapter 37, verse 4. He said, it may be that the Lord your God will hear and respond in this way. You know, other translations would say perhaps God will hear and, and see how the Assyrians mock him and then respond. There was no guarantee that Hezekiah's crying out to God would be met with, with uh, physical deliverance in that moment. There was no guarantee of that. You know, in, in, in the midst of, of crisis, crying out to God is not a formula that promises that, that the crisis will be taken away as soon as we say amen. It, it's not a formula like that. I mean, we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times prayed, Father, would you take this cup from me? Um, but that cup was not removed from Jesus. You think about Paul three times praying for his thorn in the flesh to be removed, and that never was. It, it's, it's not a formula that means deliverance will come according to how we think it ought to come in that moment. We're not promised that. It may be, as Hezekiah said, that God will work in that way. Maybe, but it may not be. God may work differently. What we are promised is ultimate deliverance. Ultimate deliverance from the crisis we face. Our, so that deliverance may be further down the road or, or even in eternity. The, the, the last song that we sang kind of referenced that. When we all get to heaven, that's where ultimate deliverance will be given to us for, for sure. So it doesn't mean that God does not hear. Uh, it doesn't mean that God is unable to deliver. It, it, it means that his ways are above our own. His ways are far above our own. And, and it means that in the midst of crying out to God in crisis, uh, we, we place our trust fully in him before we even know how everything's going to play out. You know, it may be that God works this way, but it may not be. But regardless, we are promised ultimate deliverance when we cry out to God in the face of crisis. 
So that was the national crisis, Assyria threatening on the doorstep of Jerusalem. The other crisis, as I said, that Hezekiah faced was his own failing health. So in the midst of that threat uh, from Assyria, Isaiah delivered a message to King Hezekiah that he should prepare for his own imminent death. God said, your, your death is, is drawing near. And in the midst of that second crisis, Hezekiah again responded by crying out to God. And so this is chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So yet again, one more time, we see the example set for us that we ought to cry out to God in the face of crisis. Hezekiah didn't turn first to, to the doctors or to the priests or his own wisdom in the matter. Uh, he immediately cried out to God. And God then responded as the story goes on. God gave him 15 more years of life uh, in response to, to Hezekiah's cries. The deliverance that Hezekiah sought, he did find in that instance. But let's kind of, let's zoom back out and look at, uh, look at the big picture again. Uh, chapters 1 through 35 of Isaiah it presents this crisis of prophesied judgment due to rebellion. The story of Hezekiah is then inserted to provide an example of how God's people ought to respond in the face of that crisis before them. Hopefully, hopefully they would turn back to God and cry out to him. Hopefully they would do that. And again, as we think about our own situation, that, that same example of King Hezekiah is beneficial for us today as well. It doesn't matter what kind of crisis we face in our lives. Hopefully, we will respond by crying out to God, crying out to our deliverer. Instead of turning to an expert or, or our own skills or our bank account or, or someone else with more power than we have, hopefully, we'll turn to God, cry out to God because he is the deliverer. Um, he's our deliverer, and so we can cry out to him in response to that. Um, th there's, there's a good reason I've entitled this entire sermon series, God is Our Salvation. And, and it's because that theme comes up again and again and again throughout the book of Isaiah. We've, we've basically talked about that in one form or another in all, I think it's been six sermons so far, that God is our salvation. He is our deliverer. So in the face of crisis, may we go to him. And so that takes us through chapter 38. Um, there's a problem, however, and the problem is the pesky little chapter that follows chapter 38. Um, and again, let's remember that 
the compiler of Isaiah purposefully inserted this story about King Hezekiah in order to make a point, in order to set an example for, for God's people in that situation. He could have stopped after chapter 38. He could have stopped with Hezekiah's healing, uh, but he didn't. Continued to share one final chapter regarding something that took place after King Hezekiah's healing. So we see in chapter 39 that Hezekiah must have been pretty sick and, and his healing must have been pretty miraculous because news about it reached all the way to Babylon. And that, that's a significant distance. News reached all the way to Babylon and Babylon even sent envoys to Hezekiah after that. Now, I, it's doubtful that the purpose of this envoy that came was truly congratulatory in nature. All right. it, it, it's doubtful that that was their sole intent. Most likely the group came for one of two reasons. Probably they were seeking an alliance because at that point Assyria was the superpower. Babylon was feeling threatened. So it could, could have been, let's seek an alliance with King Hezekiah. Or it could have just been uh, Babylon seeking to discover weakness within Jerusalem. Uh, within the nation of Judah. It's probably one of those two things, not just to come congratulate King Hezekiah. But whatever the reason, Hezekiah received them very warmly and, and proceeded to pridefully show off the vast riches of his kingdom. He gave them the full tour, behind-the-scenes look, and it sure seems that he took credit for every bit of it. You know, nowhere in chapter 39 is there any mention of Hezekiah giving God glory for the deliverance that he experienced both from sickness and from Assyria or for any of the, the wealth that he, that he had been blessed to accumulate there. And so as a result of that prideful display, God prophesied through Isaiah that eventually Babylon themselves would come against Judah and would carry off into captivity everything that Hezekiah had just shown off to them. Uh, it wouldn't be during Hezekiah's lifetime, he said, but it would come. It would come soon after that. And so in a way, this, this chapter kind of serves as a bridge to chapters 40 through 46, which were presumably written a little bit later, to God's people in exile in Babylon. So it's kind of a bridge to go from one period of time to another. But I, I think this chapter also warns us about the dangers that come when we experience deliverance from crisis. There's danger there when we do cry out to God and when he does deliver us in this life in a powerful and in a miraculous way, we're probably going to face the temptation to either take credit ourselves or just fail to give that credit to God and chalk it up to something else. We'll probably have that temptation Hezekiah had an incredible opportunity to give glory to God. Not only did he experience miraculous deliverance, but people even sought him out after that to ask about it. The ball, I mean, it was teed up right in front of him. All he had to do was swing and knock it out of the park. I mean, that's all he had to do. It was right there for him. But instead, he passed on that opportunity and, and chose to focus the spotlight on himself instead. 
You know, and, and it reminds me that the reason I had uh, uh, Dusty read the story of the 10 lepers uh, is because I think you see that perfectly in that story. There's a crisis situation for those 10 lepers. They are lepers. That is their crisis. And they cry out to Jesus for deliverance on the side of the road. They, they see Jesus, they cry out to him, and Jesus delivers all 10 of them. And all 10 leave, they go wash as they're told, but then there's only one that comes back and, and is thankful. There's only one that seems to truly give uh, credit and glory where it was due. Only one returned. And so, uh, you know, the question for us is, when you or I have faced a crisis in our own life and when we've experienced deliverance by God's hand, have we rightly given him the glory that he deserves in response to that? Have we humbled ourselves before God and admitted that, that our deliverance had nothing to do with us, that it was God working powerfully in our lives? And I, I guess here's, a, here's a, a challenge for this upcoming week in light of that, um, really in light of both things that we've been talking about. Uh, the challenge would be if, if, if you find yourself currently in a crisis, then reflect upon the example from King Hezekiah here. Reflect upon uh, how he responded. You know, be, be challenged by the fact that in the face of two different crises that, that were before him, he cried out to God. He sought deliverance from God. No matter what lies before you or I, no matter how daunting it may seem, we can, we should cry out to God. Uh, it doesn't have to be elegant. That, that crying out doesn't have to be neatly organized. It doesn't even have to be intelligible. Uh, I mean, Romans 8 talks about uh, the Holy Spirit interceding for us. With groans that words can't even express. We may not even fully know how to cry out to God, but do it anyway, and the message will, will get there. The Holy Spirit will work that within us. So, so rather than seek deliverance from some other place and rather than allow seeds of doubt to sprout and grow within us, leading to fear, let's cry out to God. Seek deliverance from him. So if you find yourself in a crisis currently, I would encourage you to do that this week. If you don't find yourself currently in a crisis, then I would encourage you to think back over a crisis you have faced in the past. Uh, reflect upon the ways that God has provided and delivered you through that crisis. And, and as you do that, be like that one leper that, that came back, that, that gave praise, gave thanks to God. Don't be like King Hezekiah or the other nine lepers that, that completely bypassed that and were even prideful in it. But come back, give thanks. You know, in, in your personal moments with God, Praise him for his hand of work in your life. Uh, in your moments with family and, and friends and, and church body even, you know, look for, look for ways to praise God publicly for how he has worked in your life. Not in a prideful, not in a bragging sense, but just giving glory to God, saying this is, this is who we serve. This is how God has worked. We're so blessed to be able to hear one another's stories and worship God, not just for how he works in ourselves, but for how he works in everybody else's life as, as well. 
So I would encourage you to, to think about that. And uh, in John 16, Jesus says, uh, in the world you will have tribulation, crisis. You will have that. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So there, there may be a crisis at this very moment. There may be crises yet to come in our lives. Um, but whatever the situation, we can take heart and we can cry out to God because he has overcome. He has overcome and he can deliver us. And when he does, we'll be sure to give him the glory, give him the honor that he deserves in response to that. Would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's do that now. And I'll even speak on behalf of all of us here as we, as we praise God for how he's worked in our lives. God, we come to you this morning, and, uh, and first I want to lift up uh, uh, any of us here that, uh, that are facing a crisis. God, whatever that is in our lives, I, I pray for each one in that spot that, that they would know that they can cry out to you, that that would be their response in the, in the face of that crisis. We thank you that you are all-powerful and that you are all-wise and all-loving and that you have overcome. We know our deliverance is promised at some point. We know there will be ultimate deliverance, uh, but we cry out for deliverance now as well. We, we trust you to work in our lives in a mighty way. God, make that be our, our response. Prod our hearts and our minds to come to you in the face of those things. And God, don't let us forget to give praise and give honor to you as well. You are a mighty God and you've shown yourself time and time again. We thank you for those times in our own lives where we've seen that. We thank you for the times in the lives of others that they've shared with us that we can praise you. God, help us to do that. We want your glory to be proclaimed across the earth in all creation. So help us to participate in that, to let others know of your great glory. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you for your love. And God, because of those things, we are here and we worship you. We pray this in your name. Amen.